Hi, this is Peter Kaiser, Editor-in-Chief of Retinal Physician. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Retinal Physician podcast series. Today, we're pleased to have with us Dr. Michael Singer of Medical Center Ophthalmology Associates and Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Texas Health Science Center. Welcome, Michael. Peter, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So now we have many approved anti-VEGF agents as well as off-label anti-VEGF agents at our disposal for wet age-related macular degeneration. So what I thought we'd do is if you wouldn't describe to our listeners sort of your thinking when you de decide what anti-VEGF agent to use in a treatment-naive patient that enters your practice. Sounds great. So obviously, you know, when a treatment aid patient enters my practice, there are a lot of factors that really are beyond my control that help shape my decision-making process on which anti-VEGF to use. If the patient comes in and they're anti-VEGF naive and it's, let's say it's at one of my satellite offices and let's, you know, we have to obviously consider insurance. One of the questions am I going to consider is whether or not am I going to give the patient a shot today? I mean, did they come from a, one of my clinics is 150 miles away, so I really try to make sure that I can do something for the patient because they made such a long trip. The other question is, what is their insurance? Some of our insurances, and this is becoming more and more popular, are very big on step therapy. So if the insurance company says, I have to use Avastin to start, I'll start with Bevacizumab, and basically, I'll decide how well the patient responds going forward. The other, if patient, if insurance is not an issue, it also depends on whether or not what branded it, branded medications I have. Do I have, um, do I have ranibizumab or do I have um, a flibercept available? Those are some of the decisions I'll make on the spot. Um, the, the other question comes in if I'm in a place where I bring them back to schedule it, I'm more likely, if I can, do a branded agent, because branded agents do a good job. If I'm doing Avastin, I'll basically look at, bring them back every month, I'll look at their OCT, and I'll look at their vision, and am I getting resolution of the fluid? Um, is it making a, a difference over time? If it's not, then I'll probably jump, most likely I'll jump from Avastin to ILEA, unless there's some reason why I need to go to Lucentis, and that that definitely is in the in the mix as well. So from a from a percentage standpoint, I think um, because the way the world's changing, more and more patients are starting on Avastin, but moving forward. Then obviously, if I'm not getting response through the those three agents, then I need to obviously think about what my next step is. I spend a lot of time looking at the time sequence between injections because a lot of times when I think the medicine may not be working, it may be that the patient has gone a little too long. You know, it's not four weeks, it's six weeks. And sometimes I'll bring people back at two weeks just to make sure that they didn't get better and then get worse by the time I saw them at four weeks. So everybody has a little different sort of definition of non-response. And in, in your mind, what's your definition? My definition is relative non-response. There, you know, many years ago we ran a study, actually looking at patients that were considered non-responders for. Um, it was actually a radiation treatment study um, with NeoVista, trying to find not pure non-responders, and they were really hard to come by. But I think it's a relative non-response. I mean, I think patients' fluid may go down, 
But the question is, do they have residual fluid? And the question is, is it one or two cysts that I'm thinking, or is it the majority of fluid that doesn't go away? Um, I do think there are definitely patients that, you know, patients have persistent PEDs. Those patients are not so quickly going to resolve with, um, you know, one shot of anti-VEGF. In addition, I think there are patients that have you know, pockets of intraretinal fluid or residual subretinal fluid that, again, I think, you know, they may not totally resolve with one or two anti-VEGF shots. But, again, I really want to take a look and see from a percentage standpoint. I mean, I look at 20% or less resolution as relative non-responder. I mean, those are people that I consider relative non-responders. And especially if I'm in doubt, I'll bring them back in two weeks to confirm it. So brolicizumab is our latest and greatest anti-VEGF agent, and in the Hawk and Harrier studies, uh, basically it dried better than a flibercept. Uh, have you used brolicizumab? And if you have, what has your experience been? So I have used brolicizumab. I was part of the Hawk and Harrier trialists, um, and I did see the advantage of using brolicizumab, and obviously in the match phase of the study, it does a better job of drying the macula than a flibercept. And I was, in, you know, I was a relatively early adopter. We started treating patients um, right, before, you know, and it was approved in October, probably November, December. We started treating patients, and the patients I treated, just like every other drug that comes to market, you treat the hardest to treat patients first and see how they did. And I was pretty impressed on how well they did. Um, I really, you know, I was. I looked at the process, and again, we started bringing more people online. It was a little bit of a delay because they had a, you know, although they got the J code faster than anybody else, it still was, you know, we really didn't go into really starting treating people to January or February, and that's when inflammation came out. And that became obviously, you know, what that's what slowed us down. Um, but recently, I've, you know, I spent some time, we, we were part of a group of eight doctors who put together a case series on brolicizumab. It was me and Nick London and Arshad Kanadi and Carl Danzig and Emil Kakami and Beryl Sheath and, and Sherrig and David Eichenbaum. And we all put this group together of our cases and we looked at, um, you know, we had 282 cases. And it's interesting during the part of the inflammation when it was working, we were putting together this abstract. And what I thought was really interesting was watching everybody's work together, because again, you spend most of your time looking in your own little world, that it did a really nice job. I mean, it really did um, help people who were chronically, you know, these chronic patients who weren't doing well, it did increase their vision and did, did decrease their OCT thickness. So, I mean, I thought that was pretty interesting. And although there was inflammation, it was pretty well managed. I mean, they did have about, um, I think it was 10% of patients that were that had a mild inflammation. Or am I going to get those numbers correct? But, um, but I think overall, I mean, patients really did pretty well. So I looked at that, and when it came out again, so then, so now, obviously, when the ASRS started, the REST committee and the SRC, which you're part of, presented their data, you know, I totally slowed down. And I slowed down for two reasons. One reason I slowed down was COVID. I think COVID really dealt a blow to everybody's practices. And my concern was with COVID is that, you know, in typical fashion, you have something that changes your vision. The tendency is to basically initially deny it. 
So, and then you're basically, the at-risk population is the population we're treating, and the whole world is giving the message, if you're at risk for COVID, stay home. So they had a, they had a double shot of stay home, and I, my concern was patients who potentially could have had early inflammation that could have been caught were staying home because of the fact that they weren't being encouraged to come back. As you know, I live in Texas. So in Texas, we've opened up a little earlier than other parts of the country. And I think the mindset has changed a lot that a lot of my wet macular degeneration patients, you know, started to come back in the late part of the spring or early summer, like June or July. And then now I'm looking at it for patients who have chronic fluid that aren't getting better. I do spend a lot of time explaining it. I explain the inflammation. I've been part of the the think tank of as you are as well of Novartis, so I really have a good understanding of how hard they're working as a company to try to figure out root cause analysis. And we've spent a lot of time in my section of this think tank called Team Treat, working to develop an algorithm to try to tell patients, hey, look, this is this is an understanding of what's going on. And basically, but the algorithm is for physicians. It really is a flow chart to say, look, patients, you give them an injection, you, you do great education. You know, you're going to see floaters. If you start seeing floaters that are different than the floaters you saw about, a, you know, a few days to a week or two after, you get on the phone and call us. In addition, all the patients I treat with prolocytivism now, I examine every single time they come in looking for anterior chamber cells. I look at the OCT to make sure there are no cells on the OCT. I do a dilated exam. If I have any concerns at all, I'll do wide field photography and fluorescein angiography because the algorithm we propose talks about how to treat these people and being armed with that algorithm, I feel much more comfortable in knowing when I'm involved. And then Novartis has actually gone one step further and what they have set up is something that we're in the pilot program called the care coordinator pilot that they now have people that help these patients and check up on them, which is really good. So these people feel that, number one, they feel like they're being looked after. And from a clinician's office, if this becomes adopted, then you know that not only you're not only it's on you, but it's also Novartis is helping you make sure the patient doesn't get lost through the cracks, because that's the big worry. Um, I've had a case of intraocular inflammation, and we've treated it aggressively with steroids, and it definitely decreased um, the sequelae that could have been, they didn't lose all their vision. They definitely helped control some of this process. But again, I've now been much more aggressive with using steroids earlier. And in addition, being very mindful that my patients are well-educated. And our phone bank is really quick about anybody who gets B of you, get to, you know, we make sure that if they have any questions, they're brought in immediately that day to make sure we don't mean it, miss anything. That was a great overview and, and really gives our listeners the right idea in terms of which patients to choose, what to do in a, in a patient you may be concerned about inflammation and kind of how you go over uh, the treatment with them. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us on the Retinal Physician Podcast Series. To our listeners, thank you for joining us and hope you'll join us at a future podcast. Thank you. Peter, thanks so much for having me. This was very enjoyable.